I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. We've seen the trumpet judgments coming in rapid fire in chapters 8 and 9. And if you notice, they got progressively worse. They went from afflictions on the earth, a third of the trees, a third of the salt water, a third of the fresh water, a third of the sky. They went from afflictions on the earth to afflictions on man. And we saw a third of mankind wiped out. And particularly in the, in the last two judgments, the fifth and sixth trumpets described in chapter 9, uh, you get the impression that hell is winning the battle. Because in the fifth trumpet, Satan is given the key to the bottomless pit, and out of it comes a swarm of deacon, demon locusts which torment men for five months. And then we see the sixth trumpet and a 200 million strong army of demonic horsemen spewing fire and brimstone and consuming a third of the human race. And it's a black, bleak, hellish picture as we come to chapter 10. And we anticipate the seventh and final trumpet, but instead we get an interlude. Now we got an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals. Now we get an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And there, there was an interlude in order to seal the 144,000. And here we're going to find an interlude in chapter 10 and on into chapter 11. And the interlude seems to be God's sort of saying, I know it looks bad, but I'm still on the throne. And in chapter 10, he's going to give us a little hint of what this seventh trumpet is going to contain. Now, there are five rather unusual aspects to chapter 10. And we'll look at each. And we'll call them an impressive angel, an incredible act, an improbable answer, an indisputable announcement, and an irresistible assignment. And you'll be tested on these. Okay? First is an impressive angel, verse 1. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now descending out of heaven, John sees a strong angel. He's dressed in a cloud. He's crowned with a rainbow. His face is like the sun. His feet are like pillars of fire. He's apparently huge. Because verse 2 says he puts his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. This is a huge angel. Verse 3 tells us he has a voice like a lion's roar. You say, well, who is this? Well, the majority of commentators think that this is Christ. And the reason for that is his appearance. He is clothed with a cloud, and a cloud is associated many times in the Old Testament with the presence of God. When he came down on Mount Sinai, there was a cloud around the mountain. Uh, when uh, he led the people of Israel, there was a pillar of cloud. When uh, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, there was a cloud that filled the temple. And so many associate that with, with deity here. He had a rainbow upon his head, and we, we saw the rainbow back in chapter 4 and verse 3 surrounding the throne of God. His face was like the sun. His feet were like pillars of fire. And those... Uh, 
statements about him are similar to the terminology used in chapter 1 in the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the conclusion is that given this description, this could be none other than Christ. Well, I think that those who take that position fail to notice a few things. And I just want to point those things out to you. These are reasons why I take this to be what John says it is, an angel. First reason is, if you notice verse 1, it says, And I saw another strong angel. Now, what does another mean? One like the other one. So there must be more than one of these strong angels. And in fact, we're told about the other strong angel back in chapter 5. And if you go back there, you'll find the first strong angel who's mentioned. Verse 2 of chapter 5. And I saw a strong angel. Same Greek word. Your Bible may have two different words here. It's the same word. Mighty, strong, same Greek word. I saw another strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. This first strong angel is obviously an angel. He's declaring who is able to open the book, and of course we find the answer to be that the Lamb of God is the only one who's, op who's able to open the book. And so here when we come to chapter 10, we find another mighty angel. Second reason. I think those who take this to be Christ fail to remember that angels can look pretty impressive. Remember back in uh, Luke chapter 2, Verse 9, it talks about, at the, at the birth of Christ, it talks about the shepherds who are out in the fields. And it says there, An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. One angel appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone, apparently like a light. It shone in brightness all around them. And so the glory of God is often associated closely with the presence of angels. Matthew 28, 2, at the resurrection of Christ, it says, An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. And then in verse 3, it describes him and it says, And his appearance was like lightning. Now, what does lightning look like? Pretty bright. His appearance was like lightning, and it says, And his garments were as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men when they saw his appearance. Those are angels. And so angels are pretty awesome creatures. In fact, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 8, after all this revelation, it says John fell down and began to worship the angel who showed him these things. Now, he had been shown all these things, and the, the angel is apparently such an awesome creature that he just thought the best response is to worship him because of his awesome appearance. Thirdly, look at Revelation chapter 18. In verse 1. It says, After these things I saw another angel. Now, it's, this is not a strong angel. This is just one of your run-of-the-mill angels. He was coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. Now, I found that those who take chapter 10 to be Christ don't feel compelled in chapter 18 to take this angel to be Christ. And their problem is, it says here, he was coming down out of heaven having great authority. 
Now, Christ doesn't have great authority. Christ has all authority. And so they have a problem with this one. But if you'll notice about this angel, it says the earth was illumined with his glory. That's an angel. And I think often we fail to realize just how great these creatures are that God has created, these angelic beings. And then let me give you a fourth reason, and that is I have a problem chronologically if, if Christ is coming down to earth midway in the tribulation period. And so those who take this view have to kind of shuffle the chronology all around to make this the end of the tribulation period when Christ is coming back. And so given those reasons, I take this as I read it to be an angel, howbeit an impressive angel. Second point, an incredible act, verses 2 and 3. Notice verse 2, and he had in his hand a little book which was open. Now it's important that we define this book. And again, this is a point where commentators will give you a lot of answers and a lot of speculation about just what this book is. Of course, the, the literal word here is scroll. I take it to be the same scroll mentioned back in chapter 5, where we read about the first strong angel. We read about the scroll, that seven-sealed scroll. And he was saying, who is worthy to open this scroll and to loose its seals? And the lamb is the one who stepped forward, the lamb standing as if slain, who was, open, who was able to open the, the scroll and to loose its seals. And so there we told you that it was the title deed to the earth. Now some, some writers say, well, this can't be the same scroll because back in chapter 5 it's all sealed up, and here in chapter 10 it's open. Well, I don't have a problem with that because if you'll remember what happened between chapter 5 and chapter 10 is that all the seals were broken. So now that, that, that scroll that was sealed, Christ has broken each of the seven seals, and now it stands open in chapter 10. And here we find it in the hand of this angel as he descends out of heaven with the title deed to the earth. And then notice what he does. Verse 2 again, and he says, He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. He stands with one foot on the land and one foot on the on the sea, and he cries out with a loud voice like a lion. You say, well, what's going on here? What does this represent? Well, let me remind you of a situation back in the Old Testament. God came to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 3, and he said to Joshua, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. Joshua was standing at the, at the boundary of the promised land, and he says, you go in, and wherever you step, it's yours. I've given you the title deed to the land. You just have to go in and stand on it, and it's yours. And I think that's the picture we have here. As here we see this mighty angel come, and he claims the earth for Christ. He stands with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, saying the earth is now Christ. He's got the open title deed to the earth. And as he cries out, heaven cracks back with these peals of thunder. Which brings us to the third point, and that's an improbable answer. Verse 4, and when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. 
Now these seven peals of thunder were not just noises. They spoke. And each one had a message. And since John had been commissioned in chapter 1 and verse 19 to write all the things that he sees, he gets ready to write down what he's just heard. He hears these seven peals of thunder-like voices. And he's going to write down the messages that he receives, but a voice from heaven stops him. You say, well, what are these seven peals of thunder? Well, all through the book of Revelation, we find that thunder is associated with judgment. And I can only assume that these seven thunders are sort of the cataclysmic judgment of God as it's all wrapped up. These are sort of the the extreme end of God's judgment, these seven peals of thunder. You say, well, why isn't John allowed to write it? Well, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. I can only assume that it's so terrifying that we couldn't handle it. And that's pretty terrifying to me. Because what we do read in here is frightening. And to think that there's something that we can't even handle that God is sort of keeping from us having to do with His judgment is even more frightening. You know, Paul had a similar experience to John. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, it says he was caught up to the third heaven. Remember that passage? He's caught up to paradise, to the third heaven. And uh, there it says he heard something that he was not permitted to tell. He experienced something there, and he was not permitted to tell what he had heard. Very similar to John. And so these two experiences are similar, and yet they're poles apart. Because Paul experienced uh, the inexpressible nature of glory. John experiences the inexpressible nature of judgment. One, one pole and the other pole. And that's why I have a problem with people who tell me, well, God took me to hell and I'm back to tell you what it's about. Because here John, here's the thunder of judgment and he's not, able, he's not allowed to tell us what that is. Paul was taken into the third heaven in paradise in heaven and he wasn't allowed to tell us what that was about. So God isn't taking people today to heaven and hell and bringing them back so they can tell us about it. There's some inexpressible concepts there that we're not even able to handle today on both poles, both the blessings of God in heaven and the judgments of God on the extreme other end. And so John hears these thunders, but he's told to seal it up. It's not for us today to know these things. Which brings us to the fourth point, and that's the indisputable announcement. And we see that in verses 5 to 7. Notice verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. Now this angel is about to make an announcement, but in order to ensure that what he's about to say is true, he makes an oath. He raises his right hand and he swears by God, the Creator. Now that's a further indication to me that this is not Christ. There there would be no reason for Christ to have to swear by somebody that what he's going to tell us is true. Uh, Christ wouldn't have to swear by the Creator. He is the Creator. 
And so we see this is an angelic being. He is swearing by God, the Creator, that what he's about to say is, in fact, the truth. And having sworn by God, he makes his announcement, beginning at the end of verse 6, and he says, there shall be delay no longer. Now, the King James Version says there, there will be no more time. And some people have sort of taken this little phrase out of context and said that that means that in eternity there won't be time. Well, that's not really what he's saying here. He's not saying there will be no more time. He's saying that time will run out. That's what he's talking about here. And, and most of our translations have, have set it up that way. There's no more delay. The, the time for waiting is over. You know, we live in a day of delay. God is being patient, and God is waiting today. He's holding back His judgment because we live in a period of grace, and we are blessed. Today is the day of salvation, the Scripture says. We live in a day of delay. God holds back His judgment, but here as this mighty angel stands with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, the title deed to the earth open in His left hand, His right hand extended up to heaven, He says, there's no more delay. Time has finally run out. And then he describes in more detail when that moment will be in verse 7. He says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets. When is it that delay is going to end? It's going to end in the days of the seventh angel. We've seen the six trumpets blow. We're waiting for that one final angel to sound his trumpets, his trumpet, and he says, in the days when he's about to blow, that's when there'll be no more delay. And he tells us what's going to happen in that seventh trumpet at the end of verse 7. And he says, then the mystery of God is finished. You say, well, what is the mystery of God? Well, that's another good question. Um, the word mystery in Scripture is always used of something that is in secret for a period of time and then it's revealed. And it's always used of something that man on his own could never figure out, that God always has to reveal to us. That's a mystery. And there are many things that are called mysteries in Scripture. The church is called a mystery. It was a secret throughout the Old Testament, and then we come to the New Testament and we find it's the mystery of the church, that Jew and Gentile would be together in one body. That's a mystery in Scripture. Uh, the rapture of the church is called a mystery. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I tell you a mystery, you shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Not a direct quote. Uh, that's a mystery. Uh, the, the, fact, the way God became man is a mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The gospel is called a mystery in Ephesians 6.19. It's a mystery. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is called a mystery. Uh, in Mark chapter 4 and verse 11. You say, well, so what's he talking about here? What mystery is to be finished at this point in time? Well, those who, who believe in a pre, no, a mid-tribulation rapture believe that the mystery here is the church. 
And at this point in time, the mystery of the church is fulfilled and the church is caught up at this point in time. And that's where their sort of theology comes from. Uh, I think we're given a hint here on what this mystery is by the phrase at the end of verse 7. It says, Then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets. Whatever this mystery is, it's something that he preached to the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, the church wasn't preached to the prophets in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not there. It's a mystery. It comes about, it's revealed in the New Testament, in the person of Christ. And so, whatever this mystery is, it's one that was preached by the prophets in the Old Testament. What, what did they preach about? They preached about the kingdom. They preached about the coming of Christ as king. That, that's the message in the Old Testament. And most of the prophets, uh, prophecies relating to the, the millennial kingdom and so forth, we have to go back to the Old Testament to get those prophecies because that's where they come from. And so I think the mystery he's talking about here that's going to be finished is the coming of Christ to reign which we find prophecies throughout the Old Testament telling us about. And just to confirm that, if you come over to chapter 11 of Revelation and verse 15, we'll see the seventh angel sound. And it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. What happens with the seventh trumpet? We hear the voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of Christ is here, and he's going to reign forever and ever. And so the mystery, I think, that he's talking about here is the fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ. And then a fifth point is an irresistible assignment, and that's in verses 8 to 11. Notice verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven... I heard again speaking with me. Now, he had heard a, ver a voice in verse 4, and now he hears this voice again. It's a voice from heaven. I assume it's God. And it says, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. Now, he's given an assignment. He's to go and take this open book out of the hand of the angel who's still standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Verse 9, and I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book and he said to me, take it and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now having received the book, John gets some further instructions. He's told by the angel to take the book, eat it, it will be sweet in your mouth but it will be bitter in your stomach. And verse 10 says, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. You say, well, what's going on here? What's it mean to eat this scroll? Well, obviously, it means, the idea is to devour its message to take in the truth, to digest the meaning of the scroll. And that's a, an analogy that's used throughout Scripture. In Psalm 119, 103, it says, How sweet are thy words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15, 16, Thy words were found, and I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.2 and says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. And so here we find John. He takes this little book and he, and he eats it. The idea is he takes it in. He digests the meaning of it. And the only problem is, as John found, that when you feed on the truth, it's not all sweet. And he says it's sweet and bitter. Now, what kind of truth is sweet and bitter? Well, I think it's the kind of truth that we're studying this morning. Because I find that the truth of this book of Revelation is sweet. I find it sweet. It's sweet because it introduces Jesus as the King of Kings. It's sweet because it describes how we're going to reign with Him. It's sweet because it tells us how He's going to get the glory that He's been due all through the centuries. And how the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of Christ and Satan will be conquered and sin will be destroyed and salvation will be full and eternal blessings will be ours. That's sweet. But there's also bloodshed and wrath and vengeance and hell and that's not sweet. That's bitter. And when you digest this book, you find that there are some sweet elements to it. But if you really take it in and by faith believe what's being said in this book, you find there's kind of a bitter feeling in your stomach because of the reality of the judgment that's going to fall on this earth. It's sweet because we're assured of Christ's victory, but it's bitter because we know that there are multitudes upon multitudes without Jesus Christ who will go into eternity lost forever. And anyone who digests this book experiences both sweetness and bitterness. The blessings of God are sweet. The judgments of God are bitter. And you know, that's one of the costs for people who really feed on the Word of God. There are some exciting promises and exciting truths. At the same time, if you're a person with any compassion... You feel that hurt for lost people around you at the same time. And that's what John experiences here. As he has the sweetness, but he also experiences the bitter reality of the truths of this book. And then in verse 11, he's given a further assignment. It says, And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now, the they there includes the angel and the voice from heaven. And he's being told, you must prophesy. Now, they're basically saying, John, you've been given a lot so far. You've been told about what's going to happen to peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now you've got to go out and preach it. And that's the assignment. The assignment is, eat the book, devour it, take it in, make it part of you, it's going to taste sweet and it's also going to be bitter. And then you go out and you preach what it says. That's the assignment. 
And John is still carrying out today as we read his message, his prophecy, his preaching to us today through this book of Revelation. And you know, as I looked at this, I thought that, uh, you know, we have the same assignment because we are given the assignment of eating this book and then preaching this book. We are to devour and absorb and digest the Word of God. And you know, I think that one of the reasons why the church today has so much sterility and stagnation is because in spite of all the translations that we've got, and in spite of all the vernacular readings that are available, God's people are not digesting the Word of God. And uh, even if God's people read, they often have a tendency to read what other men are saying about the Word of God rather than actually getting in here and reading the Word of God. And I guess if I, if I leave you a challenge today, that's what I want to leave you. To take the assignment that John was given and to eat this book, devour this book, feed on this book. That's our assignment. And don't get caught up in reading all about this book and not coming and sitting before this book and feeding on the Word of God. That's what we're called to do. And when we do that, we're going to find it to be sweet and we're going to find it to be bitter. And you will shed tears of joy. You will shed tears of sorrow as you take in, by faith, the Word of God. And then secondly, we are called to preach the Word of God. It's not enough to come to this book of Revelation and understand it and be able to, to debate with other Christians about it and to, to, to feel competent that you can, you can define all the symbols and so forth in this book. That's not enough. When we come to understand this book, the assignment's just beginning because then we are called to preach it, to proclaim it to a lost world around us. We've got a message for our world because we live in the day of delay. We still live in the day of salvation before these things have come upon the earth. And we know what's coming. And so our challenge is to take this message to a lost world around us and let them know that the end of God's patience is coming. But we still live in the day of salvation, in the day of grace. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage of Scripture which reminds us in the midst of all of the judgments on the earth that you're still in control. You hold the title deed to the earth. And Lord, I thank you that as we feed on your truth, that it is sweet because you've given us so much, but it's also bitter because we live among multitudes of people who still don't know you. And Lord, I just pray that you would challenge our hearts to realize that what we're talking about is not just stories and fables. It's the reality of the future. And Lord, that we would be challenged to share your message during this day of salvation with the lost world around us. 
And we'll do that to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.